Being a spectator, watching the game, it can be fun and entertaining, but it can't compare with actually being on the field playing the game. Playing in the game is when it really gets fun and exciting. That's when you are experiencing the maximum amount of joy and feel a genuine sense of accomplishment. That's when you feel a real connection with the rest of the team. Some people try church and they find it lacking. And that's their problem. They're trying church. They're just being spectators. If you really want a life-changing experience that Jesus Christ offers us, you need to become more than a spectator. You need to get into the game. You need to get onto the field. That's when you'll experience the life-changing power of God in your life. That is when the fruit of the Holy Spirit will really begin to grow in you. That is when church becomes your family rather than a meeting you attend. Disciples don't try church. Disciples are the church. Think about what Jesus is offering you and me. He wants to give us a piece of the action. He doesn't say, hey, watch me and be entertained. Buy yourself a hot dog and some popcorn and root for me as I change people's lives and I build my kingdom. No. He says, Come with me and I'll use you. I'll change lives through you. I'm going to put you in the game. Let you swing the bat, throw the pass, shoot the hoops, catch the ball, score the touchdowns. But in order to do that, we need to get in the game. Spectators don't get to do those things. Players do. Matthew chapter 9 ends with Jesus' words in Matthew 9.37. He says, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And in the next verses, which we'll be looking at today, Jesus sends his disciples into that harvest field. So Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 says, Jesus called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Jesus has prepared and equipped his disciples for this moment. He is not just kicking them out of the airplane at 20,000 feet without a parachute. The disciples have been listening and watching Jesus for quite some time now. And he's equipping them in a special way for this ministry. He's giving them the power and authority that they are going to need to drive out demons and heal every disease and sickness. They'll have everything they need for the work that he's giving them to do. And you know, he does the same thing for us. The Lord always equips us for whatever it is that he asks us to do. And part of that equipping is his power, which works in us and through us and for us. Try to imagine, though, how the disciples might have felt when they hear Jesus say to them, Today, I'm sending you out to do the same kinds of things that you've been watching me do. <laughs> See, it's one thing to read about how to do something, watch a YouTube video about how to do it, being with someone who's doing it, 
it's another thing entirely to actually do the thing yourself. I remember the first time I tried to make pizza. Now, I've eaten lots of pizzas in my life. I've watched the guys at the pizza restaurant stretch out the pizza and toss it and twirl it and make pizzas. I read about how to do it. I watched YouTube videos about how to do it. But when I tried to do it myself for the first time, it was a whole different experience. Making the dough was easy enough. A little flour, a little water, a little salt, a little yeast. But when it came to stretching the dough out into a pizza shape, that's when things got difficult. I would stretch the dough and it would shrink back up. I would stretch it more and it would start to tear a hole in it. I tried to, you know, toss it. That was not a good idea. I finally gave up, got out the rolling pin, and squished it out like it was pizza, like it was pie, like it was pie dough. Well, I made a pizza, but it was nothing like what I had envisioned in my mind before I started. When Jesus looked at the disciples and said, it's time for you to do what I've been doing, I think they were both excited and scared. They may have imagined themselves doing what Jesus was doing while they were watching him. They may have heard his teaching so many times that they could actually recite the things he was saying word for word. But when he says, it's your turn, they aren't so sure anymore. The doubt and the fear began to creep up into their minds. Verse 2 says, these are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. There were many more than just twelve people who followed Jesus, who would be considered his disciples. There are many in this room right now considered to be his disciples. A disciple is a person who learns from another, but a, a disciple is more than just a student. A disciple's goal is to duplicate in their self their master. A disciple of Jesus is a person who seeks to duplicate Jesus in him or herself. Now these 12 disciples that we're talking about here they're a special group that Jesus selected, and they're designated here as apostles. Now, although the literal meaning of that word apostle means one who is sent, the word is being used here to refer to a particular group of people, namely these 12 men, and the unique ministry that they are going to have in the early days of the church. Well, why 12? Why not 10? Why not 15? Why not 20? Why not some other number? It's believed that 12 corresponds to the 12 original tribes of Israel. Naming 12 indicates that a new people of God is being created, which includes all of those who believe in and follow Jesus as Christ, not just Jews. Well, why these 12? That is a good question. 
because these men are, on the whole, a pretty average-looking group of people. We would naturally think that for the foundation of the church, Jesus would select the most talented and gifted that humanity has to offer. He would want the cream of the crop, the A-team, the best of the best. But that's not who he chose. We don't know the reason for his choosing of these people. The reason behind choosing each of them is as mysterious as the reason he has chosen each of us. Now before moving on in the story, I want to take a quick look at each of these guys that Jesus has chose. Because I think it's, it is always interesting when we take a look at this and, and just reflect back on it. But the first one mentioned here is Simon, who Jesus gave the name Peter. And that's how we know Peter is more familiar with the name of Peter. Peter was a professional fisherman living and working in Capernaum at the time that Jesus first called him to become one of his disciples. Peter was the one who would usually speak up first in the group. He was kind of like that kid who always sits in the front row and the first one to shoot his hand up and speak up in class. And the rest of us were always like, there's Peter again. Peter was the one who made that famous declaration when Jesus asked who his disciples thought he was. And Peter said, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Peter was the one who pulled out his sword and he cut off the ear of the high priest's servant when they came to arrest Jesus on the night before he was crucified. Peter was impulsive, being led by his emotions instead of his head at times. But he was courageous, and he loved Jesus very much. He would be an important leader in the early church after the departure of Jesus. He would write First Peter and Second Peter in her Bible, and he would be the main source of information for another book in the Bible, the Gospel of Mark. Andrew. This is Peter's brother. He was also a fisherman. Andrew was initially a disciple of John the Baptist. But when John the Baptist saw Jesus and said to his disciples, look, the Lamb of God, Andrew began following Jesus instead. Andrew introduced his brother Simon Peter to Jesus. One of the other significant things we know about Andrew is that he is the disciple who brought the little boy with the five small loaves of bread and two little fish to Jesus to feed some 5,000 people. We might say he was a man of vision. Maybe not. Andrew was a man with a deep spiritual hunger, though. We don't hear anything in the Bible about Andrew following the departure of Jesus. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. James and John were also fishermen by profession and business partners with Peter and Andrew. Jesus gave them the nickname Sons of Thunder, which probably refers to their dispositions. They're the guys who asked Jesus, Jesus if he wanted them to call down fire to destroy the Samaritan people who didn't welcome Jesus into their town. Jesus was like, easy boys. That's not necessary. James and John are also the two who tried to pull an end around power play on the other guys by asking Jesus 
for the places of honor on his right and his left when he would sit on his throne in glory. They remind me of the, the, the guy who always calls shotgun before you even leave the house. James would be the first of the 12 to die as a martyr for his faith in Jesus. King Herod had him put to death in Acts chapter 12. And in contrast, his brother John would be the last of the 12 to die, being the longest living of the 12 disciples. John would become an important leader in the early church after Jesus' departure. He would be the author of the Gospel of John. 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, and the book of Revelation. Philip. He was from the same hometown as Peter and Andrew. Philip is the one who brought Nathanael to Jesus. You might remember that Nathanael was reluctant to meet Jesus when he heard where he was from. He asked, how can anything good come from Nazareth? Jesus quickly won Nathaniel over, though, once they met. Philip is the one who gave that insightful reply when Jesus said, If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And I have a feeling that might have been a moment when Jesus slapped himself in the forehead. He says, ay, ay, I just said, Philip. <laughs> Bartholomew. The only thing ever said about him under this name in the Bible is that he was one of the twelve. Some Bible scholars believe this may be the same guy that we know as Nathaniel, Philip's friend. Thomas. He will be forever known as the doubter because he was the one who refused to believe the other guys that Jesus had been raised from the dead. You might remember he told them that unless he put his finger in the nail holes in Jesus' hands and the hole in his side, he would not believe. Well, a week later, he got his wish. Jesus appeared and he told Thomas to go ahead and put his finger into the holes. And Thomas replied, my Lord and my God. Although Thomas has a reputation of being a doubter, he actually is the one disciple who was willing to go to Jerusalem with Jesus and face being stoned to death in John chapter 11. Matthew, the tax collector, also known as Levi, he was a tax collector, one of the most despised and hated groups of people among the Jews because the tax collectors were considered traitors and extortionists. Matthew was the person who would later write the Gospel of Matthew, the book that we've been studying. There was little else said about Matthew in the Bible. He was a quiet member of the group, but a keen observer. James, son of Alphaeus. This is the other James. This is not James, the brother of John. This is not James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James in the Bible. This is the other James. He was sometimes referred to as James the Younger, probably to distinguish him from James, the brother of John. 
He's another one of the 12 that we know very little about in the Bible. We know more about who he wasn't than who he was. Thaddeus. He was also known as Judas, the brother of James. The name tag, brother of James, was to distinguish him from the other Judas who betrayed Jesus. He probably chose to go by the name Thaddeus after Judas betrayed Jesus. He didn't want any association with the other Judas. And he's another one of the twelve we know very little about. Simon the Zealot. A zealot is someone who passionately supports a particular cause. And Simon's name tag, the Zealot, it may have been a reference to his involvement in the radical political party, the Zealots, a Jewish sect at the time bent on the overflow of the Roman, overthrow of the Roman control of Israel. We don't know much more about him. And finally, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. He was the treasurer or the money manager for the group. He was hypocritical, greedy, and he operated under false pretense. John 12, 6 says that Judas would secretly help himself to the money bag. He was also the one who complained about the waste of money that could have been given to the poor when Mary used her very expensive perfume to anoint Jesus' feet as an act of worship. He betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, helping the religious leaders to find and arrest Jesus, to have him crucified. Afterward, when Judas was overcome with guilt for the awful things he had done, it says he went out and he hanged himself. Well, this is an interesting group of people that Jesus called to be his closest companions and disciples. Four of them were fishermen, one a hated tax collector, one a member of a radical political group. Five of them we know practically nothing about. And one was a backstabbing traitor. Verse 5, it says, These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. So for this particular mission, they are to only go to the lost sheep of Israel, to the Jews. They are not to go into Gentile or Samaritan towns. Now a time will come when Jesus' disciples will be sent out into all the world, to all nations and to all people, but not this time. Seven, as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. So the mission Jesus gives the disciples is to do the same things that he's been doing. This describes what Jesus has been doing, and he says, now I want you to do that. They're to proclaim the message that the kingdom of heaven has come, namely that He's in their midst, Jesus. They're to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper, drive out demons. Now this is a whole lot more complicated than making pizza. I'd be more than a little nervous about taking all of that on. He says, freely you've received, freely give. Imagine how much a person would be willing to pay to be healed 
of an incurable, life-threatening disease or to be cleansed of leprosy or to have their eyesight restored or to be able to walk again. These kinds of things would be priceless. The disciples, they're not to charge anything for the things that Jesus has empowered them to do. They have received this ability freely. They are to give it freely. The disciples have received the blessing and the mercy of Jesus in their own lives freely. And they're to share the same with others freely. Verse 9, do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or a staff for the worker is worth his keep. An important part of the training of the disciples was them learning to trust and depend upon God to supply their needs. They're to take no money, no food, no change of clothes, no weapon or tools. They're to take just themselves and what they have on. Jesus is putting them in a position where they have to trust God for everything every day. They're going to have to live one day at a time and only carry with them what they need in the moment. Now, a quick clarification is to make sure that there's no one here thinking that this is the way that all disciples of Jesus are to always travel and conduct ministry. I want to point out that these instructions are particular for these people on this particular mission that Jesus is sending them on. There's nothing wrong with you traveling with bread and bag and money and extra clothes unless Jesus tells you to do otherwise. Now, as harsh as these travel requirements sound, Jesus is not asking the disciples to do anything that he's not already been doing himself and modeling for them. This is the way he's been living. No money, no food, no coat, no bag, no certain place to stay. He's been completely dependent upon God the Father to supply his every need every day. You might remember back in Matthew 8.20, Jesus was describing the life that he was living, and he said, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Putting myself in the position of the disciples here, I have to be honest with you, I would have some serious apprehension about going out on this mission. Like this. I'd be tempted to hide a little money in the bottom of my sandal. In case things got too hard and I could bail out and buy a bus ticket home. These guys have nothing to fall back on. If God does not come through for them, they are in big trouble. Is it really any different in our own lives, though? Not really. When we really think about it, we live under the illusion that we have control over our situation. Do we really have as much control as we think we do? I mean, I don't know if I'm going to get home alive today. I don't really know that. The disciples were not really doing anything different than they had ever done. Jesus is putting them, though, in a position that heightens their awareness of their dependence 
on God. And the same thing happens for us. We are always dependent on the Lord, but circumstances can come along and heighten the awareness of our dependency on Him. Verse verse 11, I mean. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at that house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. They're to stay at the same place the whole time while in a particular town. They're not to be moving to other houses later that might be more comfortable or attractive. They're not to be trading up. They're to be sensitive to the people who offer them hospitality and not be swayed by wealth or power or prestige or reputation or comfort. They are to show no favoritism. They are to be content with whatever the Lord provides them with. They're to maintain their focus on what their mission is. This is not a vacation or a sightseeing tour. Finally, verses 14 and 15. It says, if Anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words. Leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Jesus knew the disciples would not always be accepted. They would be rejected by some. And he prepares them for that rejection. When they're rejected by a town, they're to shake the dust off their feet and move along. Now, the Jewish people of the day, they would have easily understood the meaning of that. There was a Jewish custom of removing the dust of the non-Jewish world from your clothes and feet before re-entering Jewish territory. They would come up to the border and they would take their coat off and shake it out and knock the dust off their feet and step back into the land. For the Jew, even heathen Gentile dust was defiling, and they didn't want to bring any of it with them back into Jewish territory. The significance of shaking the dust off the disciples' feet symbolically declared that the place that rejected them were unbelievers, and that those who reject the message would have to answer to God for their actions. The disciples' message, it brought both salvation and judgment depending on how the hearers responded to it. The disciples of Jesus in our day will experience rejection sometimes, too, when sharing Jesus. Now, in general, our response to rejection should not be the same as what the 12 disciples are told to do here. These are instructions for them, for this particular mission that they are on. So please don't go around shaking the dust off your feet when any One rejects you. That's not really one of the takeaways from the story here for us. Some things to help when we're rejected when sharing our faith is, one is, let's make sure that we're being rejected for the right reason. If you're being an obnoxious jerk, then you're inviting rejection and you have yourself to blame for it. 1 Peter 4.14, Peter wrote, If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief 
or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. Don't take the rejection personally. It's not you they're rejecting. There are lots of things going on in a person's mind and heart when they're wrestling with the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Keep your focus on the big picture and the long game. Don't let, other, don't let today's setback defeat you for tomorrow. The Lord's in this thing for eternity, and we need to be too. Rejection today doesn't mean rejection tomorrow or forever. God is continuing to work in that person's life to bring them to a place of saving faith in Jesus Christ. Maintain reasonable expectations. Jesus was rejected. Why would we think we won't be? He said in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Finally, we continue to pray for people. The battle for people's hearts is fought and won in the spiritual realm. And so we pray for people. I'm closing this morning. I'll stop there. I want us to consider the risk that Jesus was taking, sending these 12 people out as his representatives. They were not among the best and the brightest. There were a number of troublesome issues attached to these guys that would have given us pause about using them. I mean, they have trouble trusting God. They have difficulty understanding the teachings of Jesus. They don't have their theology all worked out. They have sin problems in their lives. Some of them have bad reputations. And in spite of all of that and more, Jesus sends these guys out as his representatives, and I don't want you to miss this part. God uses them. You might be thinking to yourself, you know, I would love to be used by the Lord in the lives of others, but I'm not ready. I don't know enough. I don't have faith enough. I'm not morally good enough. I have lots of baggage in my life. God used these guys, and he will use you too. God's chosen to use and work through broken and damaged people to touch the lives of other broken and damaged people. There's never, ever been anyone perfect except one, Jesus himself. And amazingly, rather than entrusting his work to angels or aliens of some kind, he's chosen to pass his legacy of ministry onto the same kind of people that he helps. People who have problems and sin and weaknesses and insecurities and limitations of all kinds. People like you and me. So, don't just be a spectator. Get in the game. Get in the game. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have chosen us to get out onto the field. To get in the game. To be part of it. What an incredible thing that you've 
given us opportunity to do. And in the participation of the game, you're going to be changing us too, revolutionizing our life. Lord, we, we just we thank you for your goodness. You're so good to us. I pray that you would use us, Lord. I pray that we would take that opportunity, that we would respond to the call and the invitation. We look forward to you changing lives, both our life and the lives of others around us. Do these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.